Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, this is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm glad you could join me for this episode because we're going to get a chance to speak with Samantha Jones, who's the founder of Little Yellowbird. And we're going to talk a lot about sustainable fashion and what it takes to run a successful social enterprise. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Samantha. I guess definitely like the whole resilience side. I mean, you know, constantly going through ups and downs. And we've had multiple times in our business journey already that, you know, you're like, is this it? You know, we've had several times where we've run out of money, Mm. so tired, you know, working long hours, not getting the traction that you're hoping and then, you know, miraculously the next day or the week or, you know, something significant happens and, and then you look back and you're like, oh, yes, that was that was worth it. And that's happened, you know, there's about three really significant examples or times in our business already that I'm like, it could have been, it could have gone either way. Right. Um, so learning that I think is really important. I mean, you'll, you also have to recognize sometimes, you know, when when it is genuinely times time to call it quits um but we've not got to that point and um you know every time now i look back six months i'm like wow we've like really progressed a lot in that last six months and i think you've got to yeah step back and and look at that now next week's episode we're going to be speaking with another social entrepreneur elena chapman from 27 seconds and this is a social enterprise winery its aim is to help eradicate slavery And we have an insightful conversation about how it started, how their business model works, and what their plans are for the future. If you don't want to miss out on that or other upcoming episodes, then just hit subscribe. Just a reminder that this is now the 45th interview, so there's plenty in the back catalog to check out. And we recently celebrated getting to 10,000 listens. And if you enjoy the podcast, then I'd encourage you to leave a rating or review so that other people can find it as well. Now let's get into the interview with Samantha. So it's a pleasure to welcome Samantha, the founder of Little Yellowbird. Thank you for joining me today. No worries. Uh, What we do on this podcast is talk about purpose and what people are involved in. But in order to do that, it's quite helpful to peel back the history and go back to the the beginnings of a person's life. So I'm just wondering if we could start by going right back to where you were from. I was born in Christchurch, uh, but I haven't really spent most of my childhood living in the Canterbury region. I grew up living all around the world, different places, and sort of moving every three or four years. Uh-huh. What was it that caused those moves? My dad's job. So uh, he worked for New Zealand Immigration and was posted to different countries and different cities. Is there a country that you remember as the first place that, you know, as a I don't know, five-year-old, four-year-old? <laughs> um, yeah, so we moved, uh, we moved to Russia when I was about nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we lived there for four years. So that was kind of my first offshore experience, I guess, and working in different countries. Yeah. Or living. I was 10. I wasn't really working. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that like? Oh, you know, as a kid, you don't really understand that it's any different from what what anyone else's life is like. It's only retrospectively that you realize that was quite a unique experience. But I loved my time there. Uh, you know, it was really, I think, instrumental for me in what I'm doing now to be exposed to a different culture from such a young age mm. and, you know, made great friends, um, you know, learned a different language, mm. all of that kind of thing. So you went to local schools and things as well? Or? No, we always went to international schools, but, um, you know, and. Russia, and that was in the 90s, um, you know, there wasn't a large amount of people that spoke English, and so, and being a, being a kid, you do pick up the language mm. much easier than as an adult, so, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So that was a fascinating time to be in Russia, like 1990s, there was a lot of change that had just happened, and um, yeah. was that something that you were aware of at all, or was it kind of a adult level? I mean, not really at the time. Uh, it was definitely different than what we expected because I remember when we originally found out that we were moving, you know, the first thing is we went to the library and got every book out on Russia and it was, you know, you know, the internet wasn't as common then. And it, was, <laughs> right. it was quite different to what we read in the books. Um, but I definitely noticed a lot of changes since uh, from then to the last time I went. So when I finished university as well, I went back to Russia for a few months uh, I lived in a different city, but 
I also visited Moscow and you know, it had changed a lot in that sort of 10 years since I'd, I'd lived there as a kid. Went back there in 2011, I think it was, and I lived in St. Petersburg for a few months. Did it match your memories as a child or? Uh, some things, but I mean, it was a different, I was living in a different city. Um, and, you know, your life is just so different as a, you know, young 20-year-old compared to um, a child. So, yeah, different experience, but it was really cool to see the changes that had taken place and to reconnect with with that country because I did spend, you know, a significant portion of my mm-hmm. um, childhood there. Yeah, and it's quite a significant time, isn't it, kind of heading into the teenage years? And- yeah, so we, we lived in Russia and then we moved back. I guess I was like 14 or... 13 or 14 when we came back to New Zealand and we lived in Wellington for two years and that was actually you know in terms of transitions that was the most difficult transition for us we then went overseas again and I finished high school uh, in Indonesia but actually coming back to New Zealand um, but having grown up kind of outside of New Zealand that mm. was actually the most difficult uh, transition that I remember. Is that because your identity had formed in another place and you were it, it was meant to be home that you were coming back to, but it didn't feel like home? Or Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, especially international schools, they're quite set up for that transient lifestyle. And, you know, you'll be starting the school year with 100 other kids that have come from different countries and all going through the same thing. Whereas when we came back to New Zealand, I joined a big public school halfway through, you know, the school year that, you know, going from northern to southern hemisphere and so that was super challenging I think Mm. as a you know early teenage years yeah and what sort of subjects did you enjoy um in sort of high school days yeah oh just think back um I really loved history I've always been really fascinated by history and I did environmental studies and business um those were sort of my main subjects I also did maths and physics and those type of subjects but I, I definitely never gravitated towards those ones I, I kind of did them I guess you know partly because that seemed like a you know good solid core subject to do but I really loved history and business yeah. um, you know from the start of high school right and the Indonesia time were you at an international school there as well or yeah yeah I was at Jakarta International School okay and what just talk us through that experience because Jakarta is very different yeah, yeah. So I did my last two years of high school um, at that school, and I loved it. It was, uh, you know, again moving back overseas, and when we started, we started at the beginning of the school year, and yeah, a, you know, a couple of hundred kids that were brand new. Um, we did the IB diploma, which was super challenging, mm-hmm. and I think I really thrive on having a challenge. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed the education system there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, living in Indonesia definitely shaped what I do now because one of the most significant things I always look back on was recognising how polluted the rivers were there mm. and also the fact that most of the population were relying on those rivers for drinking water but at the same time hundreds of factories were dumping toxic waste into those same rivers mm. and, you know, just walking past those every day has to have an effect on you and, um, yeah, I guess I wanted to make sure that I didn't contribute to that um, or that I actively wanted to do something to reverse some of those issues that I saw. Mm. And how about the, I guess, the poverty level that you saw there as well? Was that a factor or? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a factor in most, you know, developing countries um, when you travel there and, you know, there's just really um, large sections of the population that are so wealthy and then large sections of the population that are are so poor and that's really obvious um in a in a city like jakarta you know you could have a beautiful mansion with slums either side of it and that's totally typical Mm. uh so yeah seeing that inequality i guess Mm. also probably played a role Mm. so if i was to talk to you sort of leaving indonesia and coming back was that something that you were conscious of that you wanted to make a difference in that way like looking at what you're doing now i'm just curious if that was seeping in at that point or if it came later reflecting back on your time I I think it was seeping in but I didn't have a clear path or direction Mm. of exactly what I wanted to do and so I took some time off uh, because I I really wanted to start 
the university year at the beginning of a year. I didn't want to jump in the middle like I'd done um, in high school earlier. So I took some time off and then I went to university but with no real clear goal of what I wanted to do. So, you know, my first year I took a bunch of papers which included history papers and Russian language papers and business papers and I kind of stumbled into doing a commerce degree but really that was because I also... um, applied for a scholarship with the New Zealand Air Force Mm. and they really wanted me to do um, a commerce degree because they had identified that my natural skill sets uh, were in logistics, which is what I ended up, I later became a logistics officer. So I did, I, you know, kind of fell into that course of study and I I always knew that I wanted to do some sort of impact role, but I also recognised that the military does, you know, the New Zealand military specifically does a lot of impact work in the humanitarian aid disaster relief space, which I was really interested in as well. Mm. And so I kind of went down that path for about six years and then eventually decided I wanted to do my own thing and mm. focus in a different area. Yeah. And just was there a history in your family of military involvement or something? Or like, I'm just curious how you applied for a scholarship, for example, for that. Yeah. So my dad was in the British Army um, for about 13 years. So I was kind of aware and understood like a lot of the different programs and things that they had. Mm. But I didn't really kind of consider it until I saw the scholarship and it, it seemed like a really good way to kind of um, get my get my university paid for, but also have a guaranteed job at the end of university because, you know, I started university in 2008, so the job market was kind of a bit, you know, <laughs> volatile at that, at that time point right. and it seemed like a really good fit. So they paid for all of my uni plus... Um, I got, you know, a living allowance and in the holidays was able to go and work for them and gain experience, uh, which was, yeah, I really enjoyed my time uh, at university working for them and then working full time as well. Yeah. And when you do that, that sort of approach of um, coming in through university, is there, once you finish, is there some basic training or something that you have to do to then be part of the military? Yeah. So super super basic stuff even before then so right. during like each summer we would go um to the training base and we would do an induction and you know all the basics but the official i guess basic training is a six-month course for right. a air force officer and that's in blenheim and so after i finished university i did that trip and spent a few months living in uh, st petersburg and then i came back and did my basic training um which was a six-month course um, in Blenheim. Mm-hmm. And what is basic training like? <laughs> oh, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, really challenging, but also learn a lot about discipline and teamwork and leadership. Uh, the first part of my basic training, I was the only woman on my course, and I found that really challenging. Um, Out of how many people total? There was 19 to begin with, and then the second half um people commissioned from ranks joined us. So we had about another 10 or so people join us and there was three other girls uh, in that group. Um, yeah, I look back now and uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> but I think it was good. It, it was, I definitely learned heaps from it. Yeah. Yeah. And is it a, a little bit of testing physical limits in terms of hikes and I don't know, my image is just from movies, so you got to bear with me, but <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> heavy packs and and going here and there and that type of thing or or was it a different focus there's definitely a bit of that but i mean the air force is quite different from the Mm -hmm. army and i think the army training is a lot more physical Mm -hmm. from what i know you know we would do pack marches and there's a certain physical requirement that you have to meet and you know you do physical training several times a week as a group um but i wouldn't say it was you know too extreme Mm. I definitely found it challenging because I'm like quite a small person and you know carrying a pack is 20 or 30 kilos it's like a significant portion of my body weight (laughs) compared to you know some of the bigger men on the course um but yeah you just find different ways to do things and yeah Yeah. get creative I guess yeah oh that's good and you already knew that you were going into the logistics role yeah yeah yeah, so I knew right from the beginning, like as soon as I took the scholarship, that logistics would be what I would be uh, going to do. So how it works is after you do your basic training, you then split off onto your different trade training. Oh, okay. uh, so, you know, pilots then go off and do their two years of wings training and uh, I know, see. Yeah, yeah. various 
logistics done has much more on the job training as opposed to like a specific course but you know over over the years you go on different courses and mm. do different certificates and and what sort of things were you learning um in logistics uh so logistic the logistics branch in the air force has heaps of different roles and components from you know managing stock moving freight uh coordinating exercises uh, aviation refuel, that kind of thing. Uh, I spent the most of my time in the supply chain management squadron. And so I was in charge of a team of people and my fleets that I was mainly working with were the maritime fleets. So uh, making sure that there was enough equipment and spare parts for the maintainers to keep the aircraft operational was my main job. Mm. Um, and then alongside that, I would support various exercises in New Zealand and overseas. So coordinating people and you know, freight, all the things that you need to do a training exercise, basically. Mm. Um, and you usually support a couple of those a year mm. in, in addition to your main job. Yeah. So it's lots of transferable skills probably to what you're doing now, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's always like, how did you go from the military to yeah. fashion yeah. business? And um, <laughs> yeah, they're totally different industries, obviously. But a lot of the, uh, yeah, the backend stuff, which yeah. is still the job that I do focus mostly on and is probably the most important in a fashion business is totally transferable yeah. and you know a lot of those skills and training that i had have been really helpful in starting mm. a clothing company mm. that's great I, I love on the podcast i talk with a wide range of people like every week not even i know exactly what we're going to talk about and and but it's fascinating quite often those early experiences or the first job somebody's had you find like oh 20 years later that was useful, you know, like yeah. the, nothing's wasted, yeah. um, which it sounds like that was the case. Yeah. So um, talk us through then. You've been working for a little bit um, doing this logistics job. What was it that caused you to think, oh, maybe I'll try something new, do something different? Uh, there's a number of factors. I think I kind of just reached a point in the military where I probably would have had to stay around for quite a bit longer to kind of progress. And the military is very, you know, structured and, you know, I'd, I'd had heaps of opportunities from a really young age, um, you know, which was awesome. But I was kind of in this place where I really would have had to stick around for another five years to get more opportunities and more, I guess, challenging roles. And I was starting to get a little bit bored and I guess that's what made me want to do something else ultimately mm. yeah and so I left not knowing what I wanted to do at all just that it wasn't right anymore and I kind of felt that for the last six months it became quite difficult to you know stay motivated and I'm a really motivated person that loves um yeah like I mentioned I, I love being challenged and getting involved with lots of things and so yeah I I re recognized that that I wasn't getting that anymore and so moved back home went back to university and then kind of just got this idea and it was it was really because I'd just always worn a uniform, never had a choice, it was supplied, you know, work long hours and often even after work might not change out of uniform. So I didn't buy a lot of my own clothes either. I didn't have a huge wardrobe and then all of a sudden I, you know, needed a, a corporate outfit for this job that I was doing and couldn't find anything organic, fair trade, you know, where it was made and, and that was the start of Little Yellow Bird and exploring this as an option and and you know what it originally started out as a woman's corporate workwear label and then we quickly changed to become a uniform company essentially. Mm. So uh, what had been your background in terms of that I guess closing industry and things or was it just completely new it was completely new so yeah. zero um i would say less than zero like i wasn't even <laughs> super interested in fashion right um and it really was just a lot of research at the beginning actually going to india and working in a factory and working out the whole system like how does you know every single step of the supply chain right back to the farms and really just learning heaps about it um and i i ended up because i was studying did my master's on it as well so lots of research went into it and mm. just really understanding how the industry works and i mean i'm still learning now but yeah. yeah that first six months was heaps of just research yeah so the master's uh paper or whatever was was this a 
topic that you were studying that then became the business or how did that mesh? They kind of came hand in hand, to be yeah. honest. So I went into this master's program. I already kind of had an idea and I knew that there was a big entrepreneurial focus. So I did the master's of engineering management at Canterbury University. And the the research topic was on Little Yellow Bird or creating or establishing a company uh, with an ethical supply chain. Mm. I see. So it fed in as a nice loop that you're studying it, you're working on it, and it's a business. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it was quite convenient to do two things at once. Yeah, no, that's great. Very efficient. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, in terms of a visit to India, was that quite early on in the piece? Like you knew that that was the place you were going to go? And, and Yeah. I mean, our very, very first production run we did in Indonesia because I guess I knew... Right. Um, I knew how it worked there a little bit more than anywhere else, but our cotton was coming from India and so it became really expensive and <clears throat> logistically not viable um, to do it that way. So I knew that we wanted to start out in India. Um, and so, yeah, went over there and started working in a factory over there for a wee while. And had you been there before or was that the first time to N- India? No, it was my first time. Yeah. What were your first impressions when you got there? Um... I think I remember being like, oh, this is even more crazy than Indonesia, (laughs) like in terms of traffic and like colors and, you know, just so much going on. Yeah. Yeah. And how did you connect with the factory? Did you just write them an email or something Uh, and say, I'd love to come and see? (laughs) I emailed like a hundred factories. Okay. Um, But originally I was emailing saying, oh, I've got this idea. I want to start this clothing label and no one replied. Right. Um, And so then I changed it to my backgrounds and logistics and supply chain and I've got a spare few weeks can I come and help you um optimize your supply chains and work with you and I got three responses and I picked one of them and went over and did some work with them and yeah it was it was really good because I learned heaps from them about how the industry works and got heaps of connections and it was also good for them because I was able to bring in a bunch of processes that they weren't using and you know one really good example was like their stock taking system was measuring every single meter of fabric and I was able to just instantly say oh that's not the best way to do it why don't you just weigh it and then extrapolate it from there you can work out you can work out how many meters are from you know if you measure a small amount and weigh the small amount and so stuff like that was really easy to just go in and, and help them change and yeah that was sort of how it started and then the thing is, is once you've already, you know, got something going and working with a, with a factory, then it's way easier and you kind of know the language and, you know, because most people won't reply to you if you don't even, if you're not even asking the right questions, which is what I was sort of struggling with at the beginning. Yeah. And you mentioned, I want to unpack that a little bit because you said you wrote to about a hundred of them and you didn't hear back. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you'd kind of, in the second version, you were a bit more proactive, more like... I've started something or I'm doing something. Is that Was that the difference in the tone? or Because um, well, I love I for was, people listening to be able to learn from your experience. You know? Yeah, I mean, the time frame wasn't like any real difference. It was all probably, you know, within a month. But what I realized was that it wasn't, I wasn't catering my request for like what's in it for them. I so see. there wasn't really anything in it for them to help, to help a brand new startup. I mean, they get those kind of emails Right, I've got, I've got an idea and can you help me right? yeah. as opposed to I've got an idea and I would love to help you. Yeah, yeah. and I mean they still did help me, Yeah. but it was definitely more of a value exchange, I guess. Sure, it's a win-win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh that's good. And then so you've been there in the factory and you've seen how it all works and you come back. Is that when you come up with the name and, and you start the business itself? or No, I already had the name and I guess the concept before I even went. Yep. Um, but it was really about actually getting an, a physical product. Mm-hmm. So we had already sold some, you know, not a lot, but, you know, a few friends' businesses, you know, we'd sold them on the concept and we'd got, you know, yeah, I mean, really nothing, but a couple of thousand dollars maybe worth of sales um, before we even went. And then it was about, right, now how do we how do we actually do this? Um, and that's, you know, been kind of a, not always, but a bit of a philosophy, I guess, that we've used because, you know, you never know exactly how to do something, but you, you can figure it out. 
And so what I see a lot of um, startup fashion companies do, and I always try to like caution and avoid against it is like, don't go ahead and like make a bunch of stuff. Right. um, Because actually the biggest challenge is like finding the market or who's going to buy it. And so, you know, even now, a lot of the stuff, we don't even make it until we've got an order. Right. You know, the stuff that we know we will sell, our basics range, yet we make that in advance. Mm. But, you know, most of it's made to order. And because to me, that's another huge problem in the fashion industry, and especially in the uniform industry, is that some companies are making thousands of product, Mm. you know, and then a company rebrands and what happens to all of that product? You know, I don't, as much as I care about, labor conditions and how the product is made. I'm also really passionate about, you know, avoiding sending a whole bunch of stuff to landfill that's avoidable. And I think it's just around changing people's mindsets around how they order their uniforms and being okay that, you know, actually it should take 90 days for it to get here. You you know, it's not, um, it's not the most efficient or environmentally friendly way to manufacture if you expect it to be available the next day, Mm. because there inherently has to be waste in that, type of system Mm -hmm. uh so that's how we we do it anyway and it i think it's a lot um safer way to do it as well in terms of financial stability for a company you don't have heaps of money tied up in stock and less risk so it's on demand yeah yeah it makes sense i think we're moving as technology and things change i think we're moving more towards that aren't we in terms of what's able to be done like for example traditionally you'd write a book and you'd print 500 copies and then you'd hope that you sold your 500 copies whereas it's much more efficient if you can take orders Mm. and then print the right number and you know that that little book i gave you the social enterprises in new zealand that's like a print on demand thing yeah so if if people want a copy then i can order more yeah rather than i don't have a thousand copies you know yeah yeah. (laughs) i literally if people want some, I'll print some more and there you go. So Yeah, and it's cool to see that be available, but I think it's ultimately about changing the way people think about things because everyone wants things straight away. Right. Um, and I think that's what's caused most of our problems, at least in the fast, fast fashion industry. Um, you know, 50 years ago or something, you'd go in, you'd order a dress and a tailor would make it and it would be ready in six weeks' time. But now we just expect to be able to walk into a store or online shop and it will show up the next day or, right. you know, in the States within four hours. Um, but there's a whole lot of waste that goes with that. Um, so, yeah. So that's the consumer-driven culture of I want it right now yeah. and, and the buzz of getting it because you bought it. Totally, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, there's good concepts there. Yeah, and particularly as an entrepreneur, I think there is a temptation to to work so hard on the product that you forget about who's actually going to buy it. And that comes back to that sort of MVP approach, isn't it? Like minimum viable product that you don't want to have the bells and whistles because you haven't received the feedback yet and you need to have that loop of, well, the customer actually doesn't want what I thought they wanted. Yeah. We need to alter it and... Totally. And I mean, you would be surprised how many times you can reiterate a t-shirt, for example. Right. <laughs> and like, you know, we always started with, you know, only 50, we'll just buy 50. And, you know, if I bought, you know, 500 or 5,000 right from the start, you know, that's, it takes a lot longer to move that many when you already know, oh, actually, I want to change the neckline and actually I want to make these sizes slightly different or the, mm. the length shorter. Um, so because we, we kept these like real small batches from the beginning, we were able to change them quite a few times until we got something we really liked. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's been probably a little bit frustrating, changing sizes and things, but we're really happy with our custom cuts now. So, yeah. Um, no, yeah. that's good because I, I love this um, interaction because people who are listening, well, many of them, well, most of them will not have a fashion business, right? Mm-hmm. But they might have another type of business and hopefully the principles are transferable across sectors and products. And yeah, of course. Um, that's what I like to explore. Just talk us through what the key features of the product are. Like you've mentioned organic and fair trade. Can you just expand on those two? But then also if there's any other parts that maybe are different to other products that are out there? Yeah, so our product, uh, we use only rain-fed organic cotton. Uh, and that means that the amount of water that's used and chemicals that go into the product are 
either completely reduced in chemicals and water really, um, sorry, completely eliminated in chemicals and really reduced um, in the amount of water. So what we know is that most cotton, most conventional cotton, takes a disproportionate amount of pesticides and water to produce. It's really, you know, it's a, na- it's a natural fibre, but it's super unsustainable. And even organic cotton can take huge amounts of water to grow. And what we've seen as the demand for, for textiles in general has increased, uh, obviously the demand for cotton has increased, and therefore it's been grown in places that really were never designed for cotton to grow in. Right. And so cotton needs a warm temperature and moisture to grow. And so it's been grown in places where that might not be the natural state um, particularly all year round. So a lot of cotton farms now are growing four crops a year, multiple crops a year, um, draining local water sources and and irrigation and usually really um, poor infrastructure around that irrigation. So a lot of wastage of water as well. Mm -hmm. Whereas where we grow the cotton, um, we're only growing one crop a year. It's timed with the the rainy season. Um, And so... No, we don't even need any irrigation. It just relies on on the rain. No chemicals or pesticides are put into the into the farming. So there's a whole bunch of natural kind of farming techniques that the farmers use. So some of them are, you know, they plant beans in between the cotton rows, which the bugs would rather eat the beans than the cotton. And they have a um, natural kind of pesticide, which is cow urine and neem leaves. And all these things take a lot more time to do rather than just spraying the whole area with pesticides but one the farmers aren't having to pay for these pesticides which which it's known in the industry that that's a huge um cost and often the farmers don't have the money for these pesticides and then year on year you know the bugs develop resistance so then they need to buy more pesticides and a lot of them end up in these debt cycles Mm -hmm. um but it just ends up with a much higher quality product because the soil is naturally really fertile and you know able to produce a good crop uh so that's sort of our philosophies around how we source our product we also um work really closely with our factories and make sure that everyone has good working conditions and pay and you know access to healthcare, education and we do fund uh, various impact projects as well so um, I'm really passionate about the communities that uh, enable our business to prosper. We're able to support them and give back. So, for example, we're supporting two schools in the area where our cotton co-ops are located. We've funded several girls through school. Um, and, yeah, every time we go back, we identify new projects and things that we can, you know, not not at a huge scale. We're not a huge company, but we can we can afford to spend, you know, small amounts of money to me but actually make a huge impact and are actually significant amounts of money for rural farmers in India Mm. yeah oh that's great it all makes sense I guess it's about convincing the consuming public to think about what they're buying and where their products from yeah and the thing that is really frustrating and often difficult for us is that it's there's so much misinformation and I guess, companies that are greenwashing as well. And, you know, we're up against these companies that, you know, might have a shiny social responsibility policy on their website. But if you really read and understand and, I guess, have a, a bit more knowledge about the industry, you can you can read those and know that they're quite meaningless. And I read all the time, uh, you know, social responsibility policies on fashion brands that say we pay the minimum wage. Or, you know, and, and to them that's like them doing something good and a consumer will read that and be like oh they're paying the minimum wage it's good but then you know Bangladesh is the example I constantly use because so many t-shirts and products are made there like do you actually know what the the minimum wage in Bangladesh is because it's 68 US dollars a month which is not enough for people to live off that's 20% of the living wage in Bangladesh so you know it's just being able to dig that to that next layer and understand what these brands are saying. Um, you know, one of our biggest um, T-shirt competitors I know sells their T-shirts wholesale for $4 a unit and I can't even buy them for, you know, I can't even buy the cotton for that much. So, you know, there's, no, you know, if something's cheap, 
someone has paid for it somewhere mm. and you know our, our products aren't overly expensive you know if you're buying them uh, bulk or you know around twenty dollars uh, for a t-shirt but that's a fair price to pay when you know all of the steps that have um, gone into the supply chain and you know you're not externalizing any of those costs and you know ha- having huge impacts on the environment mm. yeah no it's great how do you how do you go about educating people about this yeah um i do a lot of talks and try to write blog posts about it and mm-hmm. um i'm actually organizing a a sustainable fashion conference at the moment so on the 19th of april in wellington we've got about nine speakers who are all experts on the subject you know some that have you know businesses that have been going for a few years through to some sustainable businesses that have been operating for 40 years but all in the ethical fashion space um and you know talking about what what the future of fashion is going to be and these ethical considerations that that most of the public are wanting to know about and Mm. you know people don't really want to buy something that they know has had child exploitation involved but it's the fact that most people can't access that information or mm-hmm. the information's not available. Yeah, yeah. So what would be your hope, you know, in 10 years or 20 years? Do you think that there will be a change and a shift? Yeah, I I already see it changing. Like even over the last few years, people's understanding and the level of questions that they ask me are becoming more sophisticated. And okay. um, But I still think we have a long way to go. Um, but I think... It is trending in the right direction. It kind of has to. Like, we can't continue to destroy our planet and exploit people, you know, for, for you know, a few dollars. It's just, it's not viable. And I think it, everyone's recognizing that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. And um, you've used the word we for your business a couple of times. Mm. Have you got a team of people there? And is it based in Wellington? Or? Yeah, yeah. So we've got a small team. We're based in Wellington. So we've got a few people here in New Zealand and then um, also in India as well. Okay, yeah. yeah. And is your main market here in New Zealand or are you, are, are you expanding? Or We started in New Zealand, uh, but also uh, randomly America is our second biggest market. Um, and that's growing we're hoping to continue to grow that and again that was never on the cards I never thought that that would be the next logical step mm. and it kind of again came back to that we got a, a request from this American company who couldn't find what we were offering um, where they're based and they said oh do you do you supply to the to the US and you know we hadn't but we we're like sure <laughs> we'll <laughs> we figure, can do we'll that figure that out um and sure. we did um yeah, right. it did arrive like the day before they opened but um you know <laughs> we got like a there. little bit of adrenaline huh <laughs> yeah um but you know it, it was actually really simple when you know the product went straight from India to um the US I, I was there in India at the time to quality control it um but yeah it's just I guess I think one of the reasons, you know, and we've gone through ups and downs and made mistakes and all of those things that a, a new business does, but we've never been afraid to try anything. We always jump at any opportunity we can. Um, and yeah, most of the time we get it right. Um, and when we get it wrong, we work really hard to, to fix any problems that we, we do uncover. Right. So if an opportunity is there, seize it. Is that your advice? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else that you've learned on that sort of entrepreneurial journey? Is is there anything that I guess sticks out for you? Uh I guess definitely like the whole resilience side. I mean, you know, constantly going through ups and downs and we've had multiple times in our business journey already that, you know, you you're like, is this it? You know, we've had several times where we've run out of money. Mm so tired you know working long hours not getting the traction that you're hoping and then you know miraculously the next day or the week or you know something significant happens and and then you look back and you're like oh yes that was that was worth it and that's happened you know there's about three really significant examples or times in our business already that I'm like it could have been it could have gone either way right um so learning that I think is really important I mean you'll you also have to recognize sometimes you know when when it is genuinely times time to call it quits um but we've not got to that point and um you know every time now I look back six months I'm like wow we've like really progressed a lot in that last six months and I think you've got to yeah 
step back and, and look at that. Yeah. Oh, it makes sense. I love that word resilience. It's come up several times on other people I've interviewed. So there was one guy um, named John Fargo who talked about resilience as an organization. Mm. And that episode's really good because you can transfer it to people as well, you know, and and I guess the sense is that you've got to push through those hard times because you, you'll make it, right? Yeah, and, uh, you know, I always ask people, well, when does it get easier? Or I was, I've stopped right. asking now because I had an answer. <laughs> because the answer is it doesn't. You just get better at coping with it. I see. Um, or that's been what I've been told, and I can definitely recognize that that is true. Yeah. Um, you develop those skills, and, you know, you also just re- recognize when you're starting to burn out or what you need to do personally to like get that motivation or refine that passion. And for me, one of the really important things is going back to India. Like I always come back really motivated because right. I'm able to see the, the impact yeah. and um, yeah, connecting with that why is really important for me. So mm. I'm in India a few times a year. Um, but also taking time out is a new thing that I've really recognized I need to do. And so over Christmas this year, I went camping completely remote, no service, and like really recognized that that's something really important I need to do to kind of just completely switch off. Because for the last three years, I, I hadn't taken a proper holiday. Like even if you're, you know, on holiday, you still have your phone on you're and checking your emails. You know, <laughs> constantly messages coming through or questions. And yeah, you know, now that we've got a team as well, it's really important that I step away and let them make their own decisions and they're all really capable people and you know I don't need to be there to answer most of them yeah well that was going to be my question was how do you keep up that motivation it sounds like it's going to India how do you know when you're getting close to that burnout point and it's time to go back uh I just get really irritable I think like I snap more and um you know I'm less yeah less enthusiastic and less creative for me um like I really love um, you know, coming up with different ideas and, you know, side events and, you know, educational pieces or, you know, I know that I'm starting to burn out when I get a request to, you know, do research for someone's and I'm like, oh, I don't really feel like it. Like, you know, that, yeah, that yeah. Kind of, once I get into that mind frame, I'm like, oh, something's wrong. This isn't yep, my normal. The well's, well's getting empty. <laughs> yeah, because I, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, whenever anyone asks to meet with me to have coffee because they're trying to do something similar or, you know, they're doing uh, their PhD on ethical fashion, like it's really important to support those requests. Mm, mm. And I try to do as many of those as I can. So, yeah, yeah. that's just one example I know. Yeah. No, I hear you. It, it is tiring, though. I, I get, because of that little book about social enterprise, I get many emails and requests to talk about social enterprise, which is great. And um, I talk with many people. <laughs> yeah. But it can get a little bit tiring if it's over and over and um yeah you just got to keep those energy levels up yeah yeah definitely yeah Yeah. and i know um you've been nominated for different things and won some awards and things what do those hold for you or or where is that an encouragement to you or is it a here's a a thing or i'm just curious yeah um i guess I don't think about them too much. I've been really fortunate that I've been nominated for a bunch of uh, awards. And last year I was um, recognised as, uh, let me get it right, Young New Zealand Innovator of the Year. Um, For me, like it's really, you know, I didn't expect that at all. Mm. And it's great to be recognised, but I also feel like it's like added pressure to kind of you know, keep going and make sure you really are making an impact. Right. So I feel that extra pressure, I guess, from I them. Yeah. Um, so it's added a little bit of like, ooh, <laughs> I got to yeah. live up to something now. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. Yeah. Um, but I guess that's a good pressure to have. Mm. Um, but it's also been super valuable and opened up a bunch of other opportunities yeah. and exposure for the business. And, you know, you just never know like who you might meet at any of these um, events or as a result of them. Yeah. Um, and connections with any business is the key. It's the, the oil, isn't it, in the machine that makes it work is it's sometimes not what you know, it's who you know and, and having those doors open. Yeah, and a couple of times, you know, especially like right at the start, often it was like giving us some validation as well, like, oh, we're on the right track and mm. not necessarily um, awards but prizes and things that we won back at the start, so business competitions mm. right. and that gave us a lot of like initial funding at the beginning, but 
more importantly, like, oh, other people like what we're doing. Yeah. We must be on the right track was yeah. kind of, I guess, yeah. helpful. Yeah, that's true. That's good. Yeah, we've got a little startup which is um, focused on AI chatbots. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been filling in the High Tech Awards submission. Uh, yeah. And it actually helps crystallize what you're doing and why you're doing it. Because they ask you, I'm sure you filled them in, you know, many questions about your business and, yeah. and how it works and what does success mean. And you have to actually reflect, you know, ah, that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I need to think about that. Yeah. And I've got a bit of a template now of like, you know, the common yeah. questions that come up. And yeah, yeah. I always kind of tailor it because I've always change businesses change somehow or doing something different but yeah. um oh that's yeah. really good well it's fascinating to hear your journey i'm um, just i'm curious about jason and what you're doing with campus i think it's called right yes yeah um, can you just explain a little bit of the background to that how did that originate and what is it and yeah yeah so a friend of mine jason pemberton has been quite involved with social enterprise and he was part of the team that delivered the social enterprise world forum And we were um, camping with a bunch of friends over New Year's and we were both recognising, I think, we'd both, um, you know, had a busy year and, you know, really recognised the benefits of completely being away from everything and not having our phones and um, that we didn't do that enough. And, you know, kind of, I think, started as like, you know, just a random conversation like, oh, it would be really cool to blend this with... Um, learning about social enterprise and I think because we had a couple of friends that were there that you know some people that knew quite a lot about social enterprise and some people that didn't that you know would ask us questions and we're like oh maybe there's something here and we kind of came up with this concept um, and I think Jason's been super involved in teaching um, and facilitating workshops in this space and he had wanted to do something outside for um, for quite a while um, we thought, oh, well, why don't we try something? And he's got all that experience um, with delivering content. And I had all the logistics side of like actually pulling together mm-hmm. a bunch of people to go away for a weekend. So we were like, oh, let's just try it. And we definitely followed that whole MVP um, model, one, because we know it works, and two, because we're both super busy. Um, but we just kind of threw it out there as an idea and asked just about 10 friends about it and got really good positive feedback. So then we chucked up a landing page and you know I we we opened up you know about 10 spots for three different courses and um yeah most of them sold out pretty quickly so we're like oh this seems like it could be an interesting um model Mm. people obviously are interested in doing it and so last weekend we did our first course we went out um to the Lake Taylor area and we were there for three days with um eight people um going through social enterprise models and what effective altruism means and a whole bunch of stuff, but, you know, also um, how to work as a team and, um, you know, we went on some walks and did some different activities and we definitely didn't get everything right. There's stuff that we're going to change and uh, adapt, but we are going again uh, weekend after next for our second course and, yeah, just reiterating it. And, and, I mean, I'm learning heaps from it as well, which is really, really cool. And I'm also getting that, you know, we, we go Thursday through Sunday at the moment, so I have to take Friday off but and the weekend, but it's actually really good because I'm again switching off from the day-to-day. And for me, it's when, when I stop thinking about all the, you know, little things that the strategic thinking or creative thinking comes back for me. So it's been really, really valuable. Hmm. It sounds like it. And it sounds like it really echoes what you said before about switching off and yeah. and it's kind of an enforced time for you to do that. Yeah, yeah. Although I definitely recognize that it's not um it's not quite as relaxing as just going camping with your friends. Right. Because <laughs> like we you're actually organizing it. <laughs> yeah, like um, we got back on Sunday night and uh, yeah, just Pretty really tired. tired. Yeah, so yeah. and then a full week this week. Right. So and I'm going to Auckland on uh Friday, get back Wednesday and we go back on our next trip there so i think it might have been you know definitely not getting the break side so much but um, right yeah yeah, we might um have to play around with the the timing right (laughs) yeah well it sounds like a great initiative to at least be trying you know and yeah i love the idea of just taking a limited number of people as well Mm. it's not like it's 50 or 100 people it's just how many eight you know like that's you can actually learn from each other and have deeper conversations yeah definitely so that's at um campus.org.nz i think is the website um there's a bit more information 
about that on there. Yeah, that's great. And in terms of Little Yellowbird, how, should, how can people connect with you about that? Yeah, so via the website, um, people can reach me um, or on social media. So our website's um, littleyellowbird.co.nz. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do sell direct to consumers via our website, um, but our main business is selling to businesses. So um, we've got our kind of e-commerce side, which is, you know, you can buy a T-shirt or apron or whatever for individual use off that, um, but definitely contact us directly for business pricing yeah. if you're wanting um apparel or uniforms for your company yeah oh good well samantha it's been great to have you on the podcast i really appreciate your time because i know you're super busy (laughs) but um we've been able to touch on a number of different things you know from russia indonesia (laughs) (laughs) india as well as sustainable uh business and social enterprise so yeah i just want to say thanks very much for your time oh no thanks for having me I hope you enjoyed that interview with Samantha. I found it was fascinating to hear about her life journey and what's led her to start Little Yellowbird, and also just to better understand what sustainable fashion actually is. Now, in next week's episode, we'll be speaking with Elena Chapman from the social enterprise 27 Seconds. Now, 27 Seconds is a bit unusual because it's a winery. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Elena. I remember there was a family which lived downstairs and they had a niece living with them. And at 11 years old, she was um, given away to be married. And I think uh, she was just a few years younger than me. And it really hit me as well that she's 11 and she's getting married. Um, So that experience there, again... Um, you see the injustice and the wrongness of that. Um, yeah, I, I think I most likely carried a few of those things and have always wanted to uh, do a small part in helping. And mm-hmm. yeah, I'm under no illusion that I'm making a great big difference, but if we all play a small part, then mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I do hope you can join me for that and other upcoming episodes. And if you enjoyed the content of this episode, then consider subscribing, leaving a rating or review, or telling a friend, or checking out some of the earlier interviews. There's now 45 of them. So there's a lot of content in the back catalog. Until next time. Mm